0: Welcome to the Celebration Baptist Church in Yulee, Florida podcast. We hope this sermon helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Our goal here at Celebration is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information on Celebration, please go to www.experiencecelebration.com. Amen. The last time we were together in the book of 1 Samuel, we are encouraged to learn that God, our God, as a God who is always at work. See, there are some times that can be very frustrating because we can look around us and not see it, not understand exactly what he's doing. And even in the midst of what seems to be chaos, that to, to know that God is actually doing something. From his word, we found out that God is always providentially working around us, and God is always working salvifically within us. He's, he's changing us and transforming us. Even when we feel it or whether we don't, he promises to change us in the likeness of his son, his Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so these are all beautiful things, all encouraging things. But now, that that was in the beginning of chapter 10. But now, all of a sudden, chapter 10 begins to take a a right hook. It begins to really change in its tone. It goes from being very encouraging to us to, to giving us a very solemn warning and, uh, and the warning comes and really stems in context of a group of people, God's people, who were, were blatantly, knowingly, and stubbornly, stubbornly disobeying the clear teaching of God's word, even though they had been warned time and time again that if they continue to do it, that it will not ultimately end well. Their problem was they kept seeking after a human king. Now, even in and of itself, that wasn't wrong. Deuteronomy chapter 17 set up kind of uh, uh, rules on how they should have a king. That in and of itself was not wrong, but their motivation is what made it so sinful. See, what they wanted is they wanted to be like all the other nations, and to be like all the other nations simply means they did not want to submit themselves to the lordship of God. They didn't want to do what it was that God was instructing them to do. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. And so they rejected God as primary king, and they just wanted a human king because they wanted to do things their own way. Now, it's important to understand they didn't want God just to go away. They wanted them to be there for them when they needed them. but in their life, they really didn't want to submit fully to him and fully to his teachings. And so here was the problem. Now, what's amazed me about all this is we see something in a way that God interacts with us. And the way that that does is God reveals his truth to us through his word. And then he gives you and I the opportunity to respond how we want to respond. We can either obey him or we can choose to disobey him. This is clear throughout the scriptures. We see in the Bible, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15, God said to the people, see I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And he goes on and says, now today choose one of these. We see in the book of Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, again, Joshua was pleading with the people to serve the Lord and turn to him. Uh, Then he says in verse 15, and if it is disagreeable to your sight to serve the Lord, choose yourself today whom you will serve. Guys, this is what God does for us every single day. Every time we come to his word, whether we're studying in private and quiet time or a small group, or whether we're here collectively as a church body studying God's word, God speaks through his word, amen? And every time we come to his word and he reveals his truth to us, it is a time of crisis, it's a time of decision. We have to choose, are we going to obey and trust him or are we willfully going to disobey? God is never going to force you to obey him and he is never going to ultimately keep you. If you want that sin, if you want to live for that sin and you want to pursue it, he will not ultimately keep you from the sin that you are ultimately pursuing. It's really your decision that you're going to make. Now, maybe there are some here that are thinking about making that decision. Maybe you're in a place where you're thinking about maybe doing the wrong thing or making decisions that are not uh, the wise decision or against God, and you're in a particular difficulty of life, and you think the way your life is going to be better is if you just disobey the scriptures and do something completely outside of what it ultimately says. If that's where you are today, then let me give you the warning that we find that, that, that basically Samuel gives the people who were doing and thinking in the same way. He gives them two warnings. First of all, the first one is this, God's allowance of sin. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. By allowance of sin, I don't mean that he's approving of the sin, right? That God allows you to sin whenever you want to. That's not what I mean. I just mean that he allows you in that you have a free moral choice to choose whether you're going to obey and whether you're not going to obey. And so the scriptures say God's allowance of sin should never be viewed as God overlooking it. just because he allows us that choice it doesn't mean that once we commit the sin that he's disinterested or he has, he has no concerns or, or that he's not worried about that sin or that he just overlooks it all together. Look, if you will, verse 17, I think you'll see it. He says, now Samuel called the people together at the Lord of Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, you up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And, but today you have rejected your God. Who saves you from all your calamities in your distresses, and you have said to him, "Set a king over us." Now it's vital we understand the context of what's going on. Finally, the people are getting what they have been pressing Samuel and God to get. They are going to get a human king. So they've all been gathered together by Samuel in a place called Mizpah, and all 12 tribes are are, are there. So there's literally tens of thousands of people who are gathered, and they're excited. This is a great day of anticipation. They finally get what their sinful hearts want, and God finally gave it to them, and they're all fired up to lay hold of, figure out who this king is going to be, and they're waiting for Samuel to come and begin to speak. He's the primary speaker. So he takes the podium, and he comes up to the, the, the pulpit, and that's just my own sanctified imagination, but he's got to speak to them somehow, and he begins to speak to them, and, and as he does, the people, of course, are, 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 in, are thinking that he's going to say kind words, that he's going to begin to spout out some pleasant platitudes, recognize some dignitaries, important dignitaries that are in the audience, and begin to shout out some thanks to this tribe and that tribe for making all of this possible today, but the truth is none of that ends up happening. Instead, when Samuel comes before the people, he blasts them over their sin. He, he, he goes all profit on them. And he begins to tell them, hey, look, you guys, the reason that we're here and what we're doing right now is the result of your own sinful desire. And he begins to tell them, he what we're doing today is all because you have rejected God's goodness you haven't, re- you haven't recognized his, his grace and his mercy that's delivered you from Egypt and delivered you from all of your enemies around you. He's provided for you and he loves you and he takes care of you, but you are responding to him in an inappropriate way. What you are doing is you were rejecting his lordship for a human king. Now, what's interesting about this message that he preached is it's not the first time that he preached it. When we go back to actually 1 Samuel chapter eight, he preached almost the same exact message back in 1 Samuel chapter eight. And there, basically what he's doing, he's warning them over and over again. When they first started to kick around the idea, that's how sin works sometimes, right? You get the idea, well, maybe I'll do this. And you start kicking it around. I wonder if that's right. I wonder if it's wrong. This is what they're doing. And at the moment they begin to think that they're gonna go against God and do something that they know is wrong, God comes to them and he warns them and he tells them through the prophet This is not going to end well for you if you go down this path. It's a clear teaching that God ultimately gives to them. And so what they're thinking, here's what they're thinking. They're thinking because they're getting what it is that they've wanted. Follow me real quick. They've been seeking it for so long. They're getting what they're wanting. They think that God is okay with it. They think that all they're gonna do is they're gonna sin, knowingly sin, and then they're just gonna turn the page and they're just going to move on with life, and life is going to be hunky-dory, and God's going to be okay and cool with what they're doing. And what Samuel gets up to say is, no, God is not cool with what you're doing. You may move on. You may have, have, have committed this sin, purposeful sin against God, and you may be moving on, but God's not moving on. You, you can't just overlook the sin and think that that's going to have no bearing or consequence for your life and your relationship between you and God. Now, we see this principle in other places of the word of God. One of the places we find it is in the book of Joshua. In Joshua, we see that God's people, are they're entering into the promised land and they're, they're defeating one enemy after the other. And finally, we get to the battle of Jericho, everybody's favorite song, right? And the battle of Jericho and they wipe out Jericho and, and they wanna go on to these large cities and they wanna c- kind of wipe them out. But on their way, there's a little teeny city by the name of Ai, that they come across and they're like, well, listen, that's no big deal. We just got done with Jericho. Don't, let's not bother ourselves. Let's just send a small group of men up there. We'll wipe them out. And then we'll move on and do the rest of what God wants us to do. There's only one problem. When they sent that small detachment of soldiers up there, they come back and they got whooped. And they come back and all of a sudden, Joshua's like, what in the world's going on? He begins to tear his clothing, showing warning. He's seeking God. How could this possibly happen? And God said, somebody within the camp took accursed things. Now, here's what God clearly warned them. Before they went into Ai, he commanded them very clearly in his word that they were to take none of the accursed things. That is, they weren't supposed to take gold or silver or jewelry or or animals for themselves. Everything was supposed to be wiped out. Everything was supposed to be ultimately destroyed. But there was a man by the name of Achan that decided, hey, there's some stuff that I kind of like and would look good in my tent. And so he goes in, he grabs it, and he can't put it out because everybody would know he was guilty. So he buries it underneath his tent And what we find is they lose, and God's not allowing them to move on for the rest of the campaign. Why? Because there was blatant, clear sin in the camp. And what we find from that is this, is the point was that you and I cannot ignore the clear command of God in the past and think that it will have no bearing on our future. We can't believe, we can't, we, we, we can't come before you can move on with God in the future. You have to deal with what God has been telling you so clearly in the past. You know, it's kind of like, a, I guess if I was going to give you a, a modern day um, illustration, I think the biblical ones like Achan is probably the most important, but some that speak to us more clearly are things that are near and dear to our home like, like Legos. Legos really, really demonstrate, I think, this principle here. we have any dads in the room? Dads? Yeah, right? If you, if you were a dad, you know what a Lego is, right? You know what it is because kids, when they're like embryos, they want Legos, okay? They can't put them together, all right? They, they don't know how, and, and if you're a dad, it's so funny whenever I use this kind of analogy because those who aren't dads are like, this is stupid. If you're a dad, you're like, yeah, Legos, man. Yeah, Legos, right? And so you get the Legos, and here's what we find out with our kids is they never want the small pack of Legos, I like the small pack of Legos. I want the 90-piece Lego. Men, you with me? Why? Put them together, slap them together, because you know this kid is too young to be able to put all that together for themselves. They want the 9,000-piece Lego, right? So you get the 9,000-piece Lego, and there you are just doing your whole thing, and they're just looking back, and you're like, where's this piece? Where's this piece? And then you begin to think, there's 9,000 pieces, Hold on, son, just sit there for a moment. And you just start putting them together, right? And you start putting them together, and you get this piece here. And what happens is they're in books, and you get this part done, and then you get this part done, and this big part done. And then you try to put them all together, and you get one big, giant piece. The problem is every once in a while, something goes wrong. And you try to sit there, in these little, teeny pieces, you got 9,000 of them. If you get one piece wrong, it doesn't go together the way it's supposed to. It doesn't look like it's supposed to. And so I do what every other man does. If it's not going the way that it should, I just start shoving it together, right? You just start shoving it. And my wife gets so angry with me. She goes, why do you think power is going to cure everything, right? She goes, you have stripped more bolts and nuts and everything else because you just think you've got to push it harder, right? And so you take the little thing and you start shoving them together and you're trying to make them work. But no matter how hard you try, it doesn't work. What you actually have to do is you have to sit back and go, okay, I went wrong somewhere. Let me go back and figure out where I went wrong. And you go through the instructions backwards, and you finally find that it's some little teeny little rotten piece that was turned the wrong way or looked exactly like another piece, just a little different color, and you got it wrong. But until you get it right... How that Lego is supposed to function and what it's supposed to look like, you'll never get there. You'll never get what the architect designed for that thing to be unless you're following the instructions the way that they had ultimately been laid out. What I'm saying to you is our life in some ways is that way. In some ways, that way that for us, God has given us instructions on how we to live our life and God is leading us constantly, changing us, nurturing us, wanting us to be like Christ. And when God gives us a very clear instruction, now let me explain this. I mean clear instruction that is found in the word of God. I don't mean this stuff where people come up to me and go, God is telling me to draw a picture of the cross. And I'm like, well, great, draw a picture of the cross. I, I can't help you with that because that, that's, that's not objective, that's subjective. You feel like God is telling you something. What I'm talking about is when the clear word of God is presented and you and I know it, If we are disobedient, purposely disobedient to that particular text of scripture, then we can't just move on with the Christian life as though nothing has happened or that we weren't disobedient in what God was clearly telling us to do. It doesn't work that way. Now, what what I wanna do is I wanna make sure that we're abundantly clear on what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about sin that we commit, I'm not talking about accidental sin. That's what's different. That's where it breaks down with the Lego illustration. With the Lego illustration, I'm not purposely trying to get it wrong. I just mess, messed up somehow. So I'm not talking about accidental sin. I'm not talking about sin that you and I commit on a daily basis, basis accidentally. We don't wake up in the morning and go, today at two o'clock, I'm gonna lose my temper at the office and I'm just gonna go ballistic, right? We, we don't do that. When I get home, I'm gonna kick the dog. No, you don't plan that. It's, it's just throughout the day, because of our flesh, we we find ourselves sinning. And I'm not certainly not talking about the kind of sins that we continually struggle with. Anybody? You know what I mean by that? For every believer, there seems to be just an area of sin in their life that we fight against. We don't want we, want, we ask God, take it away, change us, do whatever you have to do. And every day, it's either victory or failure within that particular area, and we hate it. But here's the difference. And those sins that we continue to struggle with, first of all, we are struggling with them. And number two, we want nothing more than God just to resolve it and take it away. It's not something we're pursuing. It's something we're trying to die to our flesh in. It's also not that type of sin that is a sin of ignorance. There are many times that we do things that are because we just don't know any better from the word of God. I know this is a pastor and a preacher. Unfortunately, you go back and listen. I don't know why anyone would do this. I don't recommend it, but you go back and listen to a sermon maybe that you preached five years ago, and you're like, wow, did I really say that? And you get up and you kick and you spit, and you're like, this is the word. And then five years later, you're like, wow, that's Wow, that's not even what the word of God was saying there at all, right? And, and, and I'm not talking about ignorance of the word of God. What I'm talking about is a type of sin that is purposeful. I'm talking about the type of sin that you and I know very clearly goes against the clear teaching of what God's word says. It's the choosing to do the opposite despite even the warnings of God. In the Old Testament, there's a, clear, there's, a, there's a name for this. It's called high-handed sin. It's a sin that is not accidental. It's not a sin of struggle. It's not a sin of ignorance. It's a knowing sin in your life that you determine that you're going to commit no matter what, even though you've been warned time and time again that it's going to be sinful, but yet you do everything you can to be able to make it happen. It's an attitude that says, I can do whatever I want with whomever I want, Whenever I want and demand that both God and his church and his people overlook my sin and allow us to go on our way, even though I've committed this specific sin in the past. And what the scripture's is saying is it doesn't work that way. None of, none of this works that way. And the ministry, in in and this is really kind of a very much pastoral message. You know, I've had folks, I shared this last week, and they were very kind and sweet. I was kind of bouncing the sermon off each other, trying to get if this works, and some people just kind of told me, they go, Mike, this is such a simple message. And I go, I know, it really is, right? God reveals his truth to us. He gives us the choice to obey or to disobey. If we disobey purposely, it will not go well with us. I understand, we, we probably, not a person in here would disagree with that. It's not new news. But why is it that so many Christians are falling to this very sin and living in this very way? knowing the clear truth of God's word, but yet thinking that God's just gonna overlook it, they can commit it, and then they could just go along their merry way in their life and it's not gonna have any kind of, uh, of trouble between them and God or them and God's people. Everything's gonna be hunky-dory. And the scriptures say, no, not hunky-dory. It doesn't work this way. Just because God allows you the choice to disobey, it does not mean he overlooks the sin or forgets about it. There's so many people that we, I've counseled in the past and you just tell them, hey, look, man, this is, they, they come to you, hey, what does the word of God say? You clearly show them the word of God and they respond, that's what I thought you were gonna say. You're like, why'd you think I was gonna say that? And they're like, well, because that's what the Bible says. And I'm like, well, well then why are you coming to me? And really why they're coming is this, is because they wanna find somebody else that has a different opinion. Let me just share this with you. If you look hard and long enough you will find somebody with an opinion that is not consistent with the word of God. You'll end up finding it. What people are doing is they're just looking for somebody along the way to be able to say, hey, that pastor's crazy or that person's crazy. You don't need to listen to that. You do this other thing. And and, and that's what happens. And and, and what happens is people will say stuff like this. You know that they're falling into the sin when their conversation, they begin to say things like this. Well, God understands the trouble I'm going through. Yeah, he does. He knows the trouble you're going through. Somebody else will come along and they'll say something like this. They'll say, God, God wouldn't want me to go through this difficult time and remain in difficulty. Or of course, my favorite is this, is hey, you know what? I know it's a sin. I'm gonna do it anyway, but I know that God is forgiving. If that's the way that you think, when you come face to face to the clear teaching of God's word and his command, you are in big trouble. You are in big trouble theologically and biblically. And it's interesting because what you'll do is you'll try to talk people out of it, but they'll sit back and they keep holding to these same excuses, God knows I'm going through, God doesn't want me to suffer, God will ultimately forgive me, and you're sitting there going, man, this person's heart is so far off to what a believer's heart ought to be about. Look, the truth of the matter is God will allow you, The allowance, God allowance of sin should never be viewed as him simply overlooking it, forgetting about it, or not it coming back into your life and interfering later on down the line. Now, there's a second thing that we see in the scriptures, and that's this. God's allowance of sin should never be viewed as God blessing it. See, some people, I've seen people take it even a step further. This is what's happening within the text itself. Some people, they're they're so easily deceived because not only they believe that God will just overlook it, but some people, when they get what it is that that, that they've wanted, that they've sinfully been pursuing, then they believe that God had a hand in this thing. I, I've, heard, I've heard testimony after testimony, things that are clearly against the word of God. Well, look, I got what I wanted. It must be a blessing. And that's what we see in the text. Look at verse 20. In the casting of the lots, look at verse 20. It says, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken, he says, by, by lot. And, and he brought the tribes of Benjamin near by the clans and the clans of the Matrites were, were taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. Now what's happening here is this is that they're choosing of a king and God has chosen a king for them based on their sinful wicked hearts. So what he's doing is we see him supernaturally working and they were going to see God at work through the use of these lots. Let me explain it for you just a moment. These lots were a way in the Old Testament according to the scriptures in Proverbs 16:33, the Bible says that God used lots to reveal his truth to the people in the Old Testament. And it, would, it, it, it says this, it says, the law is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from God. Let me give you a couple examples. Sometimes the high priest would have the urim and the thummim within their, their breastplate. And what they would do is whenever they wanted to get a word from God, they'd take a little bag and they would throw the black rock and the white rock in it. And then they would sit back and say, okay, God, do you want us to move forward or do you want us to remain where we are? Do you want us to go forward or do you want us to stay? Yes or no? Then they would pick their hand in and they would pull out a black rock or a white rock. And God sovereignly determined which rock was going to ultimately choose. And then they would use that as a clear word from God. Now, how many wish we could return to the Urim and the Thummim, right? It'd be a lot easier. Because, but why did he work this way? Because they didn't have the completed word of God and the Holy Spirit had not yet been given that indwelt them to be able to lead them unto all truth, okay? So there's a different time. Sometimes these ermine, th- or sometimes these casting of the lots would work like this. You'd get kind of like a hat or you take, not, not really a hat, but you would take, you would take uh, um, some kind of uh, like I want to say pillowcase. What am I thinking of? Some bag, there we go. Oh, hard word, bag. And you take a bag. And then what they would do in this case is they would take all 12 tribes of Israel. They'd put their names in and they'd say, okay, God, we know there's a king. Which tribe is it from? They'd stick their hand in. They'd pull out the tribe. And here we have the tribe of Benjamin. And they'd keep doing that until they got down to the actual person that they were choosing. Well, guess what? This was exactly who God had chosen God was at work here. And it would have been very easy for all of them to sit back and go, look at the hand of God. God is working in all of this, giving us the very thing that we ultimately want. But time out, this is what you need to understand. God is indeed always working in our life. And sometimes you may see him working in our life very clearly, but it is not always in order to bless us for our faithfulness. Sometimes it is to discipline us because of our disobedience. So God is working in this. He is giving them a specific king, but he's giving them what their sinful hearts want that they're not giving up on. It's actually the discipline of God. Now, we know this for a couple of reasons, not only because of that, but we see a couple of examples uh, in, in the word. The, the other idea is, is, is we see it in these lost king. Notice, uh, read a little bit further down. The Bible says, but when they sought him, he could not be found. So finally, when the lot falls on Saul, they can't find him anywhere. They're looking around for him, wondering in the world world that that he is. Now, that phrase, he could not be found, is very significant. And here's why. Because it's repeated 12 times in the previous chapter. 12 times. Do you remember the chapter that we read about the lost donkeys? Remember lost donkeys? We, we, We talked about them. And 12 times it talked about that they could not find the donkeys. 12 times. Could not find the donkeys. In scripture, when you're, when you're learning to interpret scripture and understand the scriptures, you look for things that are repeated over and over and over again. This author has got something in mind. Twelve times he lets you know the donkeys could not be found, and now he uses the same exact phrase to, to describe this king that they have chosen over him. And what he's in essence saying is the king that you guys have chosen is no better than the lost donkeys that Saul couldn't found, find in the beginning. And so they tell him, they said, so they inquired of the Lord. He says, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. It's, it's a clue to you and I to let us know that even though the people think everything is going okay, that everything is going to be okay in them directly disobeying God, that things are not okay and things will not end up well. Let's give another example of this. Look at, look at verse 23. Uh, this is the mentioning of the king's size. And it says, and they ran and they took him from there. And when they stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from their shoulders upward. And Saul said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So understand what they're doing. They're excited. They get the king. And not only do they get a king, they get a big giant, big one. We're all excited when we get a big one, right? Do you remember like drawing stuff? Your mom and dad, they've got Twizzlers and somebody pulls out the big one and everybody hates the person with the big one, right? He got the big one, right? And it, are you guys not with me on this? All right, we, 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 seem, to, we seem to exalt and praise and, and honor those things that are big. I'll give you an example, moms, you get this. For years as a pastor, I would come home with my wife and I and, and she would say, I would say, yep, they had the baby. This is when they had it, and this is the name of the baby. And I thought I was doing good as a man, right? To get the name of the baby right. Men, you with me? What do they always want to know, ladies? Size. How big is the baby? I don't know. He's like that big. You know, I don't know. He's a baby, right? And, and, and they always want to know, yeah, but is he big or is he small? And you're like, well, you know, he's like 19 inches. Oh, just a small little baby. He's 26 inches. 26 inches? That's a big old baby! That's a honking, big, giant baby. And it's like everybody loses their mind. It's like grandparents. Yeah, you get that, right? Grandparents, how are grandparents with their kids? You know, they always brag about the big grandchildren. Have you never noticed that? You got to see my grandson, 13 years old, 6'2", he weighs 220 pounds, right? <laughs> Think about my grandparents for a second. <laughs> I just, I, I have a hard time believing that they were like, hey, you got to look at my son. Graduated high school 5'8", same size that I am now, weighed 121 pounds when he graduated. <laughs> Check it out. Look at that guy, he's, he's, he's an impressive specimen. He, they didn't do that because we're, we're, we're excited about all this bigness, but they're excited because on the outside, their sinful decision, listen, almost always seems attractive and good because sin tells us that sin is fun for a season. And Sometimes the decisions that we make get us out underneath difficulties, immediate difficulties, But what we end up finding, what we don't understand is the difficulty in future is gonna be great worse than the one that we tried to escape. And what we find in the scriptures, this is an interesting thing. They mention the height, but it's another hint, once again, from the author to let them know everything appears to be okay, but everything is not going to be okay. Because when you read about the height of people within the Word of God, for example, when you come to Numbers or Deuteronomy chapter nine verse two, when when they were crossing over to the Jordan, the people were going to fight the Anakin. and what we find is that the people were of great height. They were they were of great height and they or or they were great and they were tall. Every time the Scripture is used to describe somebody as tall in the Old Testament, it's using it to talk about somebody who is out of the covenant family who is seeking to do harm to God's people. It's true in Deuteronomy. It was true in Numbers chapter 13, verse 32, where where they went and spied out the land. And this is a land through through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw there were of great height. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll see later in our study in chapter 4. There David is, and he's against who? Goliath, a man that, that was almost 10 feet tall. It's all this height. And so they think it's a good thing, but the author is telling us, you always think it's good to begin with, but this is not going to end well. Let me, let me sum this up saying this. If you are seeing what you believe is to be God working when you have chosen to disobey, to, to be disobedient to him, you are right. He is working in your midst. But it most likely is not to bless you, but to discipline you. They wanted a king, he didn't want them to have it. They kept pressing and going and going. It's what we want is our Dalich's heart. And you and I, when we need to fear is not when God doesn't give us what we want, but when we pursue it to the point that he finally gives us, us up, Romans 1, and gives us what it is that we want. And it's what happened here. He, he tried to warn them. He told them to stay away from it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse seven tells us that every child of God, God disciplines. Did you know that? Every child of God, He disciplines. And we'll see people go out all the time and I'll even hear people say, well, they went out and made the same decision for me and they're not getting disciplined. Their life seems to be going great. Two things, either one, it's going great and still the, the, the discipline of God is gonna come and you just don't see it. Or number two, it's going great and there's no discipline of God because they are an illegitimate child of God. The promise of scripture is the believer who disobeys will always be disciplined, always be disciplined. Now look, there's, there's, there's three things here. Maybe, let me give some application. Maybe you're thinking of disobeying God. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're like the Jewish people, like back in, in chapter eight, where you're sitting there and you're just kicking around this idea. I'm about to do something in a marriage or a friend or finances or job or whatever. And look, look, I'm thinking about doing the wrong thing. I know it's wrong, but I'm thinking about doing the wrong thing. What I'm just simply saying to you is it never ends well. It never ends well. In the history of mankind, There has never been a man, woman, or child who has always knowingly chosen to do what is wrong, and they were better off for it. They were always worse off for it, even if initially it seemed like a good thing. Second thing, maybe you've already disobeyed God. Maybe you're already in the place where you've already made that decision. You've already done the wrong thing and you're sitting there, and maybe, maybe you're feeling, or maybe you're not even feeling the consequences at this particular time, and what I would say to you is what we say to everybody in all of our sin is repent and turn. Recognize that you've blatantly disobeyed God. Recognize that, tell God, confess that to with him, but you have to turn. It's not just sitting there going, hey, I did the wrong thing. If possible, you need to change the direction in which you're going to be able to make it right without sinning again. Here's the third thing that I want to say, and I want you to hear this very carefully. Maybe you are giving advice to other believers that are around you. You need to be very careful of the advice that you give you. It's so frustrating for me and for many of you to try to do everything we can to instruct people in the way of God. Do you understand that? That we submit to the word of God. When somebody comes to you and they ask you, what does the Bible say about this? And you, as carefully as you can, you lay out the clear teaching of the word of God then you've got somebody in the same church that comes along and says something like, hey, buddy, yeah, that's wrong, but God will forgive you. God's gracious. It's no big deal. We understand. Can I, can I tell you this? The reason that we often say that is because whatever situation they're in is a tough situation, and we have compassion on them, and we need to have compassion on them. So we think the compassionate thing to do is to try to get them out of whatever suffering that they are now going in. But it is not; the, the, it's not better for them to get out of that suffering only to go and find themselves in another type of suffering, which is ultimately the, the the discipline of God. It is much better, the Bible says. He says, "Listen, we're all going to suffer. For, we're all going to suffer. Your cho- your choice is this: to suffer for righteousness' sake, or to suffer for unrighteousness' sake. We either remain." faithful to God, and yes, your faithfulness to God might very well, listen, might very well cause you great suffering. It's why, though, Paul says, I'm convinced of this very thing, the sufferings of this world and this time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to me in the day of Christ Jesus. He admits there will be great suffering for doing what is right. Suffering for righteousness sake and doing what is right is far better than suffering for unrighteousness, that you're being disciplined by God because you've chosen to disobey him. Let me say this, any advice that you give to another person that includes the advice to be willful, deliberate disobedience of God is terrible, wicked advice. If you're telling somebody that is ever okay to disobey God and go your opposite way and do your own thing, as compassionate as you think that you are sounding, it's the most uncompassionate thing that you can possibly do, because now they're under the discipline of God. You know, all of this is is basically used as a motivation. That's what the tool is. It's a motivation for us. The discipline of God. That's what it is. You, you know that. Uh, he, he tells us like in 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 in, in, in um. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines His own children. What's the purpose of that? The threat of discipline is what to obey, right? And and, and that's what we do with our own kids. Now I need to be very, very careful with this. That's why it's here. But did did you notice within the text there was no mention of discipline? I only know that it's discipline coming because it's been promised, and I know how this story ultimately ends. But there was no mention of that. And we're going to look that there is a, a there's actually a greater motivation than the discipline of God. So this is it. Let me explain it this way. So we do very light spankings in our home. Is this thing on? Light spankings in our home, because you never know when you're going to jail for whatever. All right, you just don't know what's going to happen. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is we've just found with some of our kids, you could just look at them, bam, and man, they're good. Wait, no, no problems here? We're good. All right, I'll, I'll stop what we're doing. There are some kids that need some encouragement. Okay, we're just going to leave it at that. Our encouragement is called the spanky stick, Okay. And before you begin to dial somebody right now and think two by four, our spanky stick is literally six inches long. It looks like a tongue depressor is basically what it is, all right? And I know some of y'all are like, where's my belt? All right, but that's for you. You don't have to speak and get it recorded, all right? So, so it, it, it's, the, it's, it's just the little spanky stick. And so what my mom does, my mom, that's messed up, my wife. whole nother problem in sermon. The... Um, the, uh, she, she carries it in her back pocket. And all she has to do, I mean, the kid gets out of the line, she just kind of pulls it out, pew, just pops it right on the rear end, and all of a sudden, it's amazing. Woo-hoo. Like, I'm recalibrated, right? I just got my tires rotated. I'm good. All right, we're good. You, you, you understand? And you just kind of pop like that. Sometimes, all you got to do is just, she just takes it out like that, and she goes, she puts it on her chin, and all of a sudden, everything's fine. Now, that's all okay when they're little. Why? Because they don't know. They can't think through the stuff. They're learning. They're, they're trying to begin to understand all this sinful idea. Now, if we have to follow our kids when they're in college with the spanky stick, that's not going to be a good thing, right? Why, what do we want them? When they go off to college, we want them to obey first and foremost because of their love of God, yes, and fear of God. But even more so, we want to do it for the love of God, but we want them to do it even for love of mom and dad. We want them to be able to look back at us and to be able to sit there and go, my mom and dad loved me so much. They were so giving and so encouraging. They sacrificed so much and they taught us what is right and wrong. And out of our love, we want to ultimately do what is right. Now that's secondary to what the ultimate motivation is for us. God will in times discipline us and even use that discipline as a motivation for us to be able to do what is right. But do you know what the ultimate motivation is? His goodness. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. And this chapter is bookend. This section is bookend with that. Not the chapter, but the the section the pericope. And what we find in the very beginning is he starts with the goodness of God. He says, God delivered you from Egypt. He, he, he opposed all of your enemies. He took care of you. He provided for you. He, he goes, and now you're responding in light of this. It starts with goodness. It ends with goodness. Look, at, look w- with me very quickly. Verse 27. It says, then, then Samuel told the people the, the rights and duties of the king and he wrote them in a book and laid them up before the Lord. Now all he's doing there is he's writing down how Saul is supposed to be leading their people. And later we'll get to that, the significance of that, because he's going to ignore it, basically, all right? It's a part of God's discipline. But look a little bit lower. He says, then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. And Saul also went to his home at Gibeath, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present, but he held his peace. Do you know for you that know a little bit more of the word of God, does that sound familiar to you? This does this not sound like Christ in the gospel? Jesus Christ, I'm not for, for, for a second suggesting that, that, that Saul is a, is a type of savior here, but he is a type of king. And there's another king who was going to come and the same exact thing came. He came and his own did not receive him. In fact, they were going to mock him on the cross. They were going to curse him on the cross. And yet the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 that he was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like the sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Look, if today if a threat or a warning for you uh, that, that you will be disciplined if you continue to spitefully disobey the word of God. If that doesn't do it, hope, if that does it for you, then that's fine. But what I would much rather hope is that the goodness of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross, that he bore our sorrows, bore our sins at the righteous hand of God, that he did it all, and because of that, that love for him makes us want to turn the change and say no more, and to ultimately repent.